Namo Atasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Sumasambuddhasa Namo Atasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Sumasambuddhasa Namo Atasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Sumasambuddhasa Buddhang Dhamang Sangang Namasami so uh, the topic of love, sex, and awakening um, seems like it's pretty central to many people's lives. And yet it's what's interesting to me is, is that in the, Dhamma, in the Dhamma circles, it's, it's very rarely that it's talked about in any kind of an open and candid way. And that's been something that has, um, has never ceased to amaze me. One goes on retreats and, you know, the whole of one's life is opened up for exploration except this one. <laughs> and one just is left with this question, well, what's going on, you know? Why, 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 why aren't ta- teachers talking about it? Anyway, I don't know why people are not talking about it, but for me this has been um, something that has, has, has been such an, a, a place of of interest and of richness and of growth and of suffering, that it seems that, you know, the more that I have a handle on this, the more that I feel at ease with this topic and the whole energetic force that it conveys, the more peaceful that I am. And when I don't, there's, a, there's quite a consequence. There's a lot of, of and agitation. So I think, you know, in our culture in particular, we have an interesting conundrum with this because when we look at the word love, I mean, it's hackneyed and it's used all over the place and it means 10,000 different things. And so, you know, what are we talking about? And, you know, on one hand, when we look at this, this whole conversation of love, you know, one of the things that's really important is, is that it, it, it covers an enormous spectrum. So... When, when, we, when we talk about um, children and ch- childhood development, it's, it's really essential that a child um, forms a bond with a primary caretaker. And if that doesn't happen, then what, is, what happens in psychological terms is they've got an attachment disorder. Now, this attachment disorder is something that's not a helpful thing. And so it's interesting because in the, in the Buddhist language, having attachment is the thing that we're trying to let go of. But in this context, what it means is that if we don't have attachment, it's actually not a good thing. So if we haven't actually found a way of bonding with another person where we can trust and relax into that bond, then we lack the attachment that comes with that. In the same way that if you take a little monkey or a primate of some kind and you put them in, a, in a, some kind of a confined area and you give them food and water and medicine and it's the right temperature, they will die. Because uh, primates need to have contact, they need to have bonding, and they need it as much as they need food and water and medicine and the kind of right temperature. So when we look at our kind of basic uh, development as human beings, there's a need to bond together with each other and feel a sense of safety. Now, in a Asian culture and other cultures, a person is not is born into a kind of fabric of a of a clan system or a family system or a, a village system, 
And so the bonding doesn't necessarily only have to happen with the primary caretakers. It happens with this, this whole huge layer of people. And so if one is not in a particularly close relationship with the primary caretakers, it doesn't matter because there's aunties and uncles and grandmas and grandpas and, and cousins and all the rest of that, and all of that can take place. But in our society, it's not that common that there's an extended fabric that we are born into. In fact, you know, most of the people that I know come from a pretty dismantled fabric. And so, you know, one of the things that we need to attend to is the way that affects our perceptions of ourself and our own needs. Particularly when you come into a culture where like a Buddhist culture, or in my situation, a monastic culture, where what one hears again and again and again and again and again is letting go of attachment. And yet, sometimes the longing for love in this context is not an attachment issue as it is in the, in the negative sense of the word, it's an attachment issue in the positive sense of the word, of learning to trust and relax into trust, something that where one feels that it's not just up to me and my own self uh, to figure it all out. There's something larger that I can relax into. So this whole area of like an attachment disorder is talking about what in psychological terms would be called pre-personal development. It's before the psyche has developed and there's this clear sense of what the person actually is, what their boundaries are, and who they belong to and all the rest of that. And then we have, of course, the personal layer, which as we get older and uh, develop through adolescence, there's the personal friendships and the psychological structures and all the rest of that. And then with that comes the different ranges of friendships that we can experience. Friendships within family, friendships between sisters and brothers. Here we've got an experience of friendship within a community where the community is gathering and rallying to help somebody who's not so well, needs some support. And so you've got a, a personal layer of love that can express itself in many different ways. And then within that also there's the whole range of what romantic love is, where there's an intimacy with another person, and that intimacy has within it a component of sexuality, and what that feels like, and how that compels our attention. Now, I just came this afternoon from another group uh, of people, and one of the men in the group was saying that, you know, he comes from Pakistan, and in Pakistan, they have a completely different value system around relationships, so he was noticing that when he came to this country, you know, there's a primary relationship with your partner, you know, husband, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend. And then you drop a hundred feet down and everybody else <laughs> exists. So like there's this hierarchy of, of, of valuing where the primary romantic relationship is like orders of magnitude and league above everybody else. And so then what happens is, is that there's a tremendous amount of pressure on that relationship to take care of everything. And then when it's not going well or there's some kind of tension, then there's a real crisis because everybody else is 100 feet lower on the, on the strategy of, of need and cannot possibly fulfill that same kind of longing for affection, for companionship, for trusting, for supporting as the one person that one loves. That's this culture, right? And you can see it everywhere, you know, that having romantic love is the sum total of happiness in this universe. And not having it is one is in absolute no man's land, you know. That's worse than death, 
you know. And so, you know, the, the advertising and the billboards and the everything is, is that if you're in a romantic relationship, you are okay. And if you're not, then something's really wrong with you. And it was really interesting for me because, you know, I had gone through this process of, of being clear about wanting to ordain and wanting to be a nun. And on the way to the monastery, somebody told me, and she was absolutely serious, that she hoped that I would fall in love with the person of my dreams and abandon this crazy notion of being a nun and then live happily ever after in this loving and lovely romantic relationship. You know, when somebody says something like that, what do you do? I just smiled anyway. So that's this whole area of romance and, and what people project onto it as being a kind of in, enormously pleasurable, deeply satisfying, and ultimately fulfilling way to live one's life. And obviously, within romance, there certainly is a lot of room for nourishment, you know, an awful lot of room for nourishment. But it also has a shadow side with it. And that shadow side needs to be understood and opened up to. Otherwise, that's quite a surprise. And within romance, you know, one has a sense of, well, what's very curious of what goes on when one, two people are attracted to each other. You know, so there's a sense of, well, is it the other person that a person is attracted to? Or are they attracted to the positive qualities in themselves that they haven't yet come to terms with? Are they attracted to the negative qualities in, in themselves that they haven't resolved? <laughs> and all of these things is what happens when two people are attracted to each other. That's all there. And so, you know, when, a, when there's an interest in working with this, then it can be a very rich opportunity for awakening. And when there isn't an interest to work with this, then it's absolute bedlam because you've got projections on top of projections and where is there any kind of ground of what is real and what is true. And then you have this whole spectrum of love, which is like a transpersonal love, which doesn't have to do with the personality, but it has to do with something which includes but goes beyond the personality. And then you have mystic descriptions of love or this kind of exquisite, uh, you know, surrendering to love or God's love or there's some of St. John of the Cross. I mean, it's just exquisite eros of, of just, you know, Christ is on his breast. I mean, it's just very erotic stuff. But this is, this is eros in its pure form, where there's an interest in bringing the transcendent love into the immediacy of the personal experience. Just the other day on Facebook, I saw somebody had written from Ramana Maharshi, who was a remarkable meditation, uh, accomplished meditation practitioner and Advaita uh, master. And it was, strip me of my robes, make me naked, fill me with thy love, O Arunachala. I mean, it's just like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> So when we're talking about love, we have this whole spectrum. And I think what's important is to recognize this is that we move through various different aspects of this spectrum, and it's not fixed. So even if we feel a kind of interest in a person on one level, then it can move through all these other different levels. And so we can start with a, a personal attraction or a friendship, and then we can find that what is actually playing out is a need for this pre-personal bonding. 
you know, to really get it that, you know, there's a sense of safety and love that we can relax into. Or we can touch into these transpersonal moments where there's nothing to do with the personality of me or the other person, but this kind of universal loving quality that we can relax into and feel and get a sense of that this is not something that we get or get rid of. It's something that we relax into when the other things fall away. So, you know, our experience of the spectrum shifts and where we are at any point of it is going to shift. So the kind of basic fundamental principle of meditation is, is of being aware of what is happening and how we are relating to it. It's not about attaining certain states. It's about being open to what's actually going on. So to navigate this territory then requires a certain flexibility of internal languaging to be able to see the change when we move from one to the other and the corresponding change in expectations and needs as we move from one to the other. So the experience of a a pre-personal longing for attachment is going to obviously be different in texture and character and expectation than in transpersonal love. What we are capable of and how we respond is going to shift tremendously. The more we understand ourselves and what's actually happening inside, then the more we can be responsive to what's actually going on and what is needed. That makes sense. Where we get caught out is sometimes we feel ourselves we should be in this in this place and then we find ourselves in this place and it's like, how did I get there? Well, it doesn't matter how you got there, you're there. You know. So for myself, you know, it has been humbling over these last thirty years of meditation practice to catch myself in regressed states and have to relate to myself in a very young way, as a very young child. And sometimes around these issues of not having enough bonding then requires that kind of nourishment where you take that infant consciousness to one's heart, that which is able to be aware and know that is mature and loving, can actually respond to that young consciousness and respond to it in the kind of loving, caring way that didn't happen when one needed it to happen. So it's not as if if these things didn't happen at the right time, we're just stuck in a perpetual lack pattern. We can bring the care and attention that never happened into the present moment and grow ourselves up. But what's needed is to know how to do that and to take the time to do that when that is what is being asked. So then we talk about, all right, this is the whole spectrum of love, and then we open up the spectrum of sex. And again, we have this spectrum which is absolutely vast. You know? When I was working in the wood shop or the workshop at Amravati, there was a, a paint store, and I was flabbergasted to find out that there's undercoats and primers, and there's porous <laughs> paint, and there's non-porous paint, and there's gloss paint and emulsion paint, and... It was like paint is not paint, you know. Well, sex is not sex. (laughs) You know, you've got a spectrum that spans from absolute unmitigated terror and violence 
to the most exquisite transpersonal relationship with the whole universe and every single thing in between. So the question then is, well, how do you work with what is there? And so the, you know, the, the basic framework within the Buddhist teaching is to move towards what is in balance, to move towards what is healthy, to move towards what is kind and gentle, and to stay within the precepts. So without invoking judgment to be able to evaluate where one's at and where one's sexual practices are at, one opens up that exploration to see and then see, well, what does balance and health look like? Moving towards what is less harmful, towards what is more kind, towards what is in keeping with the precepts, towards where the whole of one's body, heart, and mind are engaged, towards that which is respectful, and towards beginning to see that this whole area of one's life is also an area that can be included in one's practice. That because one is engaged in sexual activity, it doesn't mean that one has got to focus one's attention in any particular way. We can change the focus of our attention. So when we look at moving into balance and moving away from that which is harmful and moving towards precepts, maybe it's helpful just to look and see, well, what did the Buddha say were precepts? What are the precepts and the guidelines around sexual behavior? And so the Buddha set out was a sense of not to be engaged with people who are in already committed relationships, who are underage, or who are not able to give consent. There was no mention of sexual orientation in the Buddha's conversation about precepts around sexuality. So there wasn't a lot that was given. But when we look at the precepts around harm and harmlessness, then there's a little bit more clarity that we can bring in terms of what actually hurts oneself or hurts somebody else. As you can see about you know, what it would be like to examine or explore the whole topic of safe sex. If one's engaged in not safe sex, that's harmful to oneself and it's harmful to the other person. So even though there's nothing in the precepts that talk about that, when we look about that in terms of harm and harmlessness, we can see a framework that will steer us in that direction. When we look in the, in the topic of honesty, then there's a sense of, of not deceiving, not deceiving oneself and not deceiving the other person. And so how that actually pans out in terms of one's relationship is something that needs to be explored. One of the interesting components of being a human being is is that in addition to having a, a physical body, we have an emotional body. And our emotions are rich territory to explore. And so we can engage in sex from a physical predominant perspective or that perspective can then begin to be colored or shifted or influenced by the various other different layers of what it is to be a human being. The emotions of being close and warm with another person, of being connected, of trusting, and of letting go. So the whole 
act of release in sexual experience is a letting go of control and a letting go of a sense of being separate. And partly because it's physically pleasurable and also partly because for an instant we don't feel separate, there's a deep sense of satisfaction that comes with that. But that is touching on the longing for the kind of transpersonal connection which one gets in meditation and spiritual practices. So one of the things that often happens in a, in a contemporary life is that we use sex instead of meditation practice because it's faster and easier and quicker to have that same sense of non-separation. So then sex ends up having, again, the spectrum of it serving the need to meet the pre-personal longing for merging with the divine mother or the mother who will take care, the personal ability to actually connect with another person on and meet them, and the longing to connect on a transpersonal level and be in union with the divine. And so it is not too surprising if sex is being used to fulfill all of these different ways and we're not actually clear of what's going on, that we get caught out and frustrated as well as there's addictive patterns that arise in it because when we're using sex as a way of fulfilling our pre-personal longing for attachment, it's a little bit like drinking salt water. It looks like it's supposed to quench your thirst, but it just makes you thirstier. And when we're using sex in order to fulfill the longing not to feel separate, the same thing happens. Because that lack of separation is a very fleeting experience and then the self reconstructs, the, reconstructs itself and the sense of separation reconfigures itself. And then we are left with, yes, but if only there could be more. And so in addition to the intense physical pleasure and the emotional warmth, there's this sense of, oh, this feels really peaceful and like I really am at home when this happens. And so the addictive patterning around it begins to arise because one thinks that the more one has this, the closer to God that one will be. And it's true but not right and right but not true. It gives you a window into something without the ability to integrate and stabilize that experience in one's life. So, now what do we do? I don't know. <laughs> but what I know is, is, is that what we need to do is actually work with this as worthwhile territory to explore. And the way to work with it is to be as clear as possible about what's going on and how one's relating to it, and to be clear about what one's intentions and values are, and to move in a way which is congruent with your values. So even in the middle of romance and in the middle of sexual activity, a person still has the ability of where they focus attention. We don't relinquish that unless we actually choose to. So a person can shift their attention from the physical pleasure to the emotional pleasure to the pleasure that comes from letting attention rest in awareness and stabilize itself without being clinging or investing onto the sensations that are arising. 
And so this ability to let attention rest in awareness rather than get absorbed and focused on the physical pleasure or the emotional pleasure is one of the ways in which the attachment effect or the attachment in sexual expression can begin to have some more space around it. So, in the Buddhist teachings, there's an interest to be present, there's an interest to live with balance, there's an interest to wake up, there's an interest to inquire. And all of this needs to be part of our process. Now, interestingly enough, as a person who is celibate, the only difference is activity. The energy is exactly the same. The processes are exactly the same. The ability to attach and to obsess is exactly the same. (laughs) What is different is activity and often intensity because as a celibate person where there's very few distractions and there's no, uh, no ability to release, the intensity potentizes a lot. And because it potentizes a lot, it illuminates things in ways that are not so apparent when one is living in ordinary life. And so, you know, I thought I lived a reasonably healthy life in terms of all of these topics beforehand, and I had no idea how much I would learn once I became a nun. (laughs) It was absolutely fascinating to me. And one of the things that was fascinating to me was to see that when the energy is really strong, when passion is really strong, then it also often evokes control and aversion and aggression. And to me, that was completely hidden as a layperson. I never saw it. So my own understanding of this is is, is that when you start working with these kinds of strong energies and opening them up, they don't stay differentiated in their own unique quality. Energy is energy, and it trains between itself, very uh, can change quite quickly. So when there's intense energy of one particular kind, it can evoke other intense energies as well. So as a lay person one has a whole different range of practices that are available than one has as a nun. As a nun, what I have to do is work with this entirely as an internal experience and how I'm relating to it. It doesn't get expressed in terms of relationship with others. And yet the insight that's possible and the kind of fulfillment that's possible in opening up these energies and letting them flow and not being frightened or uh, is incredible. You know, to let feel comfortable and relaxed and peaceful is just amazing. I mean, it's not easy work, granted, granted, but it's the results are worth their weight in gold. So one of the things also which is an interesting uh, revelation is, is, is that I think in this culture people have a sense that sexuality is the interaction between two people. And what I experience as a nun is sexuality is the willingness to embrace this territory with mindfulness and wisdom and compassion. And it has not to do with another person. 
It can be evoked or triggered or projected onto, but it is not to do with them. It is one's own internal energy systems. Now, it is fascinating how things change contexts. So one of the things that one notices when one comes out of a really harsh situation is that the longing for love is highly accentuated. And I remember being in the monastery, and there had been something really brutal that I had just been through. And one of the monks, who's just very sweet and 35 years older than me, said a kind thing, just one kind (laughs) thing. And I thought, you know, I could marry him. (laughs) Because when you've been through something really harsh and really brutal, you know, what one longs for is the tenderness and affection and warmth of being close. And with that, the thoughts and the images and the fantasies of what would that mean in order to have that. As a monastic, it's possible for me to have all of these feelings and watch them and just see it all as a, as a, as a play, as a show. I didn't say anything to him, and obviously I didn't act on it. But for me, that's what happens when we open up our hearts and we go through the different kinds of layers of, of, of what we experience as we become vulnerable. And our vulnerability then is part of what catalyzes being attracted to other people at certain times. Now, getting down to more brass tacks of how to work with this stuff when it's arising, you know, one of the things about sexual desire is it's a very strong energy. And sometimes what's really helpful is just to let that energy spread out and fill the whole body. Because like a razor is really sharp, it cuts. When you actually disperse the energy, the light is more soft. When you take that energy and you move it through your whole body, then it has less kind of intensity than if it's focused in certain parts of one's body or certain areas. Another thing is to begin to see how one can work with this area with using other means. So in a lay life, certainly you have the ability to act on it, but there are also innumerable times when it's like it's not happening. Either your partner's not available or not interested, or, you know, that's like, that's not an option. Or the person that you're attracted to is not your partner, and then you still have to work with it in the same way. And so... One of the things which is helpful is to understand that this energy can be transmuted in other ways. It can be transmuted through work. It can be transmuted through devotion. It can be transmuted through contact with the land. And for everyone, it's going to be different what actually helps support this transformation. I mean, we always used to joke that the reason why the monasteries were absolute like work camps was because we had a, a whole bunch of young celibate men. And you know, the only way to keep them somewhat sane was to keep them working really hard. <laughs> so what we can see is, is that as this energy arises, we don't need to fear it. We don't need to be frightened of ourselves. And then when we have a sense of the container that we are working within, then we don't need to feel frightened when this stuff arises. Because when it's really strong, it feels like we're going to be out of control. And we're going to say and do things that we regret later. So having a clear sense of precepts about what works, what's okay, what's not okay, and learning how to strengthen that. 
means that as the stuff arises, we can begin to work with it in a way which is congruent with our values and doesn't leave us feeling uh, remorseful or regretful or uh, somehow that we had wished we'd made different choices. Learning how to move the energy through the body, learning how to transform it, transmute it with other things, with work, working hard, or devotion, singing, playing musical instruments. So that what we get then is a sense of mastery, that this is not something that we are slave to, but this is part of what it is to be human and have a human body, that we have the capacity to meet and to direct in ways which are congruent with our own heart. One of the territories that is endemic in our culture is sexual woundedness. And strong energy and sexual woundedness is quite a Molotov cocktail. It takes quite a lot of skill to open that up and allow it to heal and watch the kind of huge shifts of psychological terrain that get evoked as one goes through a healing process. And that is a whole subject in and of itself, you know, how to work with that. But it's important, you know, as people interested in waking up to know that when this is part of one's history or part of one's past that there's going to be extra care and attention that's going to be needed in order to navigate the range of feelings that come up. You know, the fear or the anxiety or the longing or the anger or the aggression that comes up in connection to healing stuff that had happened in the past. And that is also part of it. You know, in a celibate community, you know, one of the greatest taboos is the fear of, of breaking any of one's sexual precepts. And sometimes what can happen is, is, is that one's whole relationship with one's sexuality gets split off. And so rather than embracing it and working with it, it just becomes something that gets sidetracked or buried. And so there have been situations where I have told nuns just feel how incredibly sexy you are in everything you do. When you drink your tea, when you walk on the carpet, when you eat the meal, when you put your clothes on, just feel the fullness of how utterly, totally, and completely sexy you are. It's like, own it. What is owned and what is known, one can work with. What is disowned is not something we can work with. So one has to be present with things as they're arising and see how we're relating to it and begin to recognize that this entire territory, whether one is in relationship or single or celibate, is worthy of our attention. It's connected to our life force. It's not separate from our life force. And as the desire component begins to shift and settle... It's not separate from the heart that opens and is able to love and to receive love. And it's not separate from this transpersonal connection of being at one with the beloved or the world or the universe. It's a continuum. And so the healthy we are in certain aspects of this continuum, then the more is the possibility that the continuum can open and flourish and flower into its full potential which is that we're not just stuck in animal bodies with animal instincts. 
We're not just longing for an emotional fulfillment that's not really possible for us to get with a particular person as a continual, sustained, ongoing, lasting experience. But that we can move through these things and also realize that what is one of the most deepest fulfilling things is this connection with the beloved, which is not personal. To love without an object. To know that when everything kind of falls away, what is left is love. That that is actually what we're made out of. So for me, my own personal journey has required picking this territory up and really working with it, and it has not been easy. But it has been phenomenally rewarding and productive. And so, you know, I speak on this topic as a way of encouraging people to say, you know, this is part of practice, you know. It's part of our lives, and it's important that we bring that kind of attention to it. So, up for you to consider. You know, I don't ask you to believe anything I say. But just try it on and see how it feels, see if it makes sense to you or not. And if it does make sense, you know, what does it look like to practice with this in your own lives? You know, what does balance, what does health look like? What does it look like to move from one area to another area? From physical to emotional to transpersonal? And how do we begin to put these things together where loving and our sexuality is part of who we are, what we know, and what we are comfortable with, independent of being in relationship or celibate? It's like, that's who I am. So I offer these for everyone's reflection and we can take a few minutes break, come back in a circle and have something of a conversation. Okay? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.